In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening, welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next week's show is The Self-Delusion by Gregory Burns. The Self-Delusion, the new neuroscience of how we invent and reinvent our identities. And um, I was drawn to the topic of the book, The Self-Delusion, trying to better understand our sense of self. And last week when I was talking about the book Awe, I was talking about how in some ways, we can think of the self as an illusion, uh, not maybe a, here it's called the self-delusion, but an illusion or that we exaggerate how much this sense of self is so real. Now, that might have beneficial outcomes for our survival in some ways, but it might make it that we don't die, but it doesn't make it that we live. And so I was interested to hear what this author has to say, looking at the new neuroscience of how we invent and reinvent this sense of self and even and that subtitle, the fact that it's invented and reinvented, shows how it's not just this quote-unquote real thing. So looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week. The book of the week from last week that I will talk about tonight is Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. And this book is a deep dive in trying to understand a issue that most of us might experience in ourselves and notice on a societal level, which is that we have a harder time focusing, focusing for longer periods of time. Our, there's a feeling that our attention spans are getting shorter and we are doing more things but doing them less well and the sense of being overwhelmed. Um, and I think I mentioned this last week. I also can relate to this feeling of my attention span and ability to focus having gotten worse. Doing the books of the week actually has been a great gift in that sense that it's in some ways forced me and put this pressure for me to focus on reading the books each week in a way that before I was doing this five, six years ago, I was doing even less of this type of sustained focus. So that's been really good. Uh, but I've noticed it in my life as well that I'm getting distracted or doing many things at the same time, and really we think we are, but we're not, which I'll talk about. And so this sense of our, our focus on our attention becoming less. And so one theme throughout the book, when we look at something like our ability to focus and pay attention that he talks about, is that we can look at ourselves and, well, you know, I should just be able to figure it out my, myself. And there's a lot of self-help books and tips and I'm sure things you can find on TikTok or Instagram, which I guess is kind of funny because that's one of the things that it's taking our attention. But nonetheless, um, of ways you yourself can overcome what's going on and, and 
do better as far as keeping your attention and your focus, which those are true and they can help. But a theme in the book is that there's other factors that are very powerful that are happening in society that make it very hard to overcome. And it could be unfair to just blame the individuals or put the responsibility solely on individuals to overcome what's going on. Uh, I generally think the balance is going to be important to look at that both can be true. We each have an individual responsibility to ourselves. However, the societal factors can be extremely powerful and those need to change also. It's not one or the other. He does liken it to things like the obesity crisis in, let's say, the United States, where obesity can be very much as related to personal choices, but we can see societal factors that have made it harder to maintain a certain body weight, or we can say make it more likely for obesity to happen because of what's happening. So again, you could say both each individual can and is responsible to take care of themselves, but we can't ignore these huge societal factors that are contributing to so much of what we are seeing. And so he, in essence, is making an argument for that in the book that, yes, there are these individual things we each can do, but we want to pay attention to what's happening at a societal level, things that are much bigger than the individuals that are having negative impacts on our attention, and then seeing what we can do about it. So he goes through 12 different causes that he thinks have contributed to our decline in paying attention and focusing. I won't go through all 12, but I'll go through some of them. So the first one is the increase in speed, switching, and filtering. So as I was mentioning, we feel like we're doing more things, but doing them less well in our day-to-day lives. And I think that's very true. You are checking so many different types of news sources. You are talking to many different kinds of people in many different ways. Um, But we're doing them a lot less well than we did before, putting less attention in each one of them. And especially switching is a big one. So uh, he talks about how most of us think we can do, we can multitask. We can do many things at the same time. But really what the research finds is that you have to switch. You're not doing two things at the same time. You're doing one thing and then you switch to something else and this is very inefficient because in the time it takes to switch that takes some time so to go from what you're focusing on to going to the next thing um, and then to get back into that mindset takes a long time even sometimes uh, one study set up to 23 minutes to get back into that same state you were in of course i don't know how they looked at it i'm sure it depends how in flow you were into the thing you were but it takes a long time for us to get back to that type of um, mindset that we were to really work on something. And if we think of anything you want to do that takes a good amount of mental effort or t- anything that is good that we need to succeed in is going to take mental effort that can't be done very quickly. And so he cites many different studies in the book. One of them said something like uh, the average worker uh, works for about three minutes at a time on something three minutes straight and then switches to something else, which again, if we're only focusing on things three minutes at a time at most, that's not going to be great for going deeper into to what we're doing. So we're seeing huge increases in how much people are switching between tasks and what we think of as multitasking, but really not doing it at all. And so as I say, said, as I read the book, I of course reflected myself on each of these issues and how 
I saw myself being impacted, and I hope you will too as I go through them. But most people will notice that they are multitasking, um, often in ways that are very, very harmful too. You're playing with your child and also checking the internet or responding to texts and not paying attention to them. And so you might think, well, I'm being efficient, but really you're taking away so much from uh, the meaningful task of checking your texts. No, I'm kidding. Playing with your child. And so you want to make sure you put that away and don't send that message to your child that this is as important as playing with you. But really, we we do that all the time. So um, this multitasking and switching can be really, really harmful. Uh, The second cause was it's related to this first one I was saying about paying attention for a certain amount of time, but it was, I thought, very interesting. But it was about the crippling of our flow states. And so to get into this state of flow, it takes some time. You can't just get there in, in a few seconds or in, in one or two minutes. So if you really wanted to get it in a state of flow, you need some time. And so if we're in a world where we're constantly just switching between things and and after, uh, let's say, three minutes or even less than three minutes doing something else, it's very unlikely we're to get into flow. And so Mihai um, Csikszentmihalyi is the the psychologist who dis- described flow in great detail, wrote a book called Flow, and did a lot of research on this, this space where we are so engaged with an activity that it's consuming all your attention and resources in a good way. So it's in this limit where we could say you're slightly uncomfortable because it's pushing you so much, but not so uncomfortable that it makes you feel stressed or overwhelmed. You can handle it. And it actually feels really good. And it's maybe the best feeling we can have as human beings, especially, I would say, in the sense of something that's extended, because you might have something that gives you intense joy or pleasure. But the state of flow can even last hours. And one of the signs that your inflow is that you lose track of time. People will be doing something for so long. And they say, find something that you enjoy doing so much that you forget to eat or go to the bathroom in a good way. Again, not like you're working somewhere where they don't let you go to the bathroom, but somewhere where you yourself don't even realize you haven't gone to the bathroom for some time or haven't eaten food. It shows how engaged you are um, with that activity. And as I was mentioning before about this uh, sense of self, it also relates here because when people are in a state of flow, they lose that sense of self. They're so, in a way, engaged with what they're doing. They're one with whatever it is they're doing. So let's say a musician playing a guitar, so engaged with playing the guitar, they almost become one with the guitar and the music. They lose their sense of self and it feels incredible. They lose the self-consciousness, the sense of how do I look or how is it being, even the music is being Um, heard by people, they just get connected with it and consumed in a beautiful way. And so there unfortunately is this effect that if we are doing things for short periods of time, we will be potentially or or almost completely removing the possibility for us to achieve these flow states, which uh, is very, very hard on us in many ways, but also takes away from our ability to really get very good at something, but also have this experience, which is one of the most beautiful human experiences we can have. The third one is related to uh, the rise of physical and mental exhaustion. So uh, he talks about how um, people are sleeping less and we are more tired, taking care of ourselves uh, worse than we did before. And actually related to that, there's also, um, I forgot if it was a whole chapter on it, 
but about what we're eating and our diets. And so uh, that is so impactful for our um, ability to focus. You know, we think of our bodies and our brains as like a machine. What the fuel you give will, of course, impact how it does. So diets that, let's say, are high in sugar and processed foods are not good for our attention and even can lead to things like what looks like ADHD, but really could be related to things like nutrition. So uh, physical and mental exhaustion are, are a big part of that. Uh, another one, this is skipping one, but is the disruption of mind wandering. So this one is kind of interesting because when we think of focus, we think of paying extremely close attention to something, which it can be. That's a, a type of focus. But another aspect of our, our focus or our ability to look at problems and and creativity is mind wandering. So that's one of the causes he talks about is the disruption of mind wandering. And so we find that most of us these days, if you if you're someone like me, I'm I'm 40 years old, I can remember in childhood we had a lot of more unstructured types of time in our lives, especially in our free time. There wasn't always something to do, something that was planned or um, as kids, I remember me and my cousins, we would come up with games. We had to just create something. Our parents wouldn't give us, okay, this is what you're going to do now, or this is what you're going to do for fun. We'd create, okay, here's a way to play volleyball using a balloon and floss. And we'd create a whole volleyball court and play for hours or playing baseball outside using books for uh, the bases. And I, I think my cousin's uh, mom probably wasn't too happy about us stepping all over these books that she had bought for my cousin to read, but we came up with the creative ways to play games. And so um, related to that is the sense of just giving some space to yourself to to think, reflect. But right now, most people, most of the time, we think we're always doing something and has this feeling of being productive. But a lot of times it's these very empty things like checking your phone and scrolling on uh, Twitter or Instagram for hours at a time not really being so engaged or thinking much uh, or getting much out of it, but being distracted in a way that makes it so you can't let your mind even wander or think about some things or reflect on problems um, that you might want to figure out. So um, that one is an interesting one because it could seem like the opposite, that it's about losing that ability to focus because your mind is wandering. And often we think that means someone is distracted, but this is not at all the case. It's part of what actually allows for us to think about different problems. Uh, then there's a few chapters, of course, about technology, or it's a theme that's throughout the book. Um, and it's this easy boogeyman to say phones, social media, that's what's what's destroying our attention and our focus. But it very much is a huge part of that. They've contributed significantly to our disruptions and our ability to focus um, and, and pay attention to the right types of things. They, they take our attention. And so... Uh, we talk about you know this term paying attention and when we look at the attention economy we look at social media and these types of apps the way we pay is with our attention so it's not about paying attention but we pay through our attention these apps are made because that's how they make their money is how long they can keep you on them how long they can keep you engaged that's it there's nothing about um, they don't have Sometimes I think people think they have just a purely malevolent malevolent plan. They want to make us, they're evil and they want to hurt us. I think what they do turns out to be quite evil and how it hurts us. But if you have an algorithm and it's just trying to keep people engaged, it's going to find what gets people's attention, not necessarily trying to make them pay attention to the bad things, but 
feed them more of what keeps their attention. And so some of the things that has been very clearly found is that things that are divisive, things that make people outraged, are more likely to keep them on. They're going to want to read it. But if it's something pleasant or something nuanced and balanced, people don't stay on. But if it's something really scary, uh, the people on the opposite political side of you are, are trying to destroy America in this way, people stay on and they share it and it gets reshared and liked and all those things that give it attention and, and it spreads more and more and we see that it's doing those things. So um, they are fighting to keep your attention because that is their product, you staying on, and that is very costly to us, to us and our ability to focus and pay attention, especially to pay attention to things that are good for us. Now, um, after the break, I want to talk a bit more about the book because there were so many different factors related to our focus and also share some thoughts about maybe we like some of these things and the ways that our attention is being diverted or being stolen. We even might even enjoy them. But it does bring up this fundamental human question of is doing what we like what is best for us? And at times those things could be at ends with each other and be opposite. So after the break, I'll continue the discussion on the book Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again by Johan Hari. And so I was mentioning these different causes that he shares and he outlines 12 of them and actually two of them are about the what he calls the rise of technology that can track and manipulate you and so it's easy to say just you you know overcome it yourself and there's a whole chapter about that that I'll get into next Um, but there are pretty significant forces at play and he shares some of the work of individuals that were in tech who are trying to fight against what they see as the problems that are happening in big tech of trying to take our attention and not for good reasons or not in good ways and how that every time you're on your screen on your phone and trying to get off of the app there are as they put it a hundred engineers on the other side of the screen trying to keep you on trying to find ways to keep you scrolling and keep you engaged and so this is what leads him to one of the chapters that he uh, is titled the rise of cruel optimism and I actually hadn't seen that term before, uh, the concept of cruel optimism. and But essentially it boils down to when someone tells you, basically, you can overcome this big problem all by yourself, and it's all on you, and it's very simple. Oh, you're spending too much time online? Easy. Do this, this, and this, and you, you won't have to worry about it again. Um and so that cruel optimism, usually it's a, it's a kind of sounds like an oxymoron because optimism sounds good and positive and cruel is negative, but it's cruel because it could be close to giving people false hope and at times uh, blaming, if we don't call it the victim, but blaming the people that are facing a challenge rather than recognizing the extent of the challenge. And so, as I mentioned earlier in the show, there is always this balance. Yes, it, there is personal responsibility. It's not also fair for us to, you know, if you have a problem with something to say, well, it's the thing that's the problem, the drug that's the problem, or the phones that are the problem. It's not me at all. Um, but also we can't ignore that if we see, let's say, obesity has risen in the United States in significant ways in several decades, well, it's 
It's not just to say people are making bad decisions only. Things are happening that's contributing to that as well. So both things can be true, that each individual has that responsibility for themselves, but we have to be aware of the larger societal impacts of what's going on. So there was a whole chapter on this, the rise of cruel optimism, and especially he shares the story of one individual who was in tech, and he wrote a tech, I think it was a book, sorry, called Hooked, about how to get people more engaged and how to create tech that would keep them engaged. But then he also wrote a book, I think it was called like Indistractable, about how um, we can overcome tech, you know, these things that are in tech, to, to not be distracted and to live a good life. And so, um, yeah, it's true. You can use these techniques, and I hope we will think about this for ourselves. And I thought about it while reading this book. Um, there are things that I do, for example, when I want to read for a longer period of time, I know that if my phone is visible, I almost always have my my volume off. But even if my, fo- my phone is visible, of course, I'll get distracted by notifications. I'll sometimes put my phone face down. But there is research even showing that if your your device is even visible, you are more you're still going to be a bit distracted because you're drawn to wonder if there's on the, if you turn it over, if you have a notification, if there's something to see. So oftentimes now what I do is I put my phone in a place I can't see, and then I can, um, you know, I read for a longer period of time. And even that still isn't sometimes huge periods of time. So uh, there is this a funny experience I've had in many of the books I've read where it's related to something I'm experiencing. And of course, this one about focus, putting enough time into focus on the book and staying focused on the book at times came up where I realized either I wasn't focusing or I was getting distracted quite often while I was trying to read the book. So that definitely happened. But there are personal steps I try to take and I will continue to work on. But I do agree with um, this notion that to blame it or to put it all on the individuals is not going to be the solution. And it's not fair because what's happening with the tech companies is, is very harmful. And if we just ignore that and focus on individual um, responsibility, we're really going to be missing a key part, which is that these tech companies will continue to take us to a worse and worse place over time. So um, I, I think that's worth noting. It was interesting that he had this chapter about that, that this isn't just like a self-help book. And there are uh, there are ones like that, actually. Um, I remember a book several years ago. I was happy, lucky to have the author on of Mindful Tech. Um, and I think it actually was good. It gave very good suggestions of how you can be more mindful of the ways you're using technology because phones and um, these apps are very good at making us get mindless and then we spend so much time on them and you can be more mindful of how you use them because uh, there really isn't for most of us a real option of completely eliminating all phones and apps and screens completely. Um, The author of the book, Johan Hari, actually shares three months that he uh, experimented with something like this. He went to, to some small town and he left his phone and laptop behind, or I think he took a laptop that um, couldn't access the internet and his phone couldn't access the internet. So he was experiencing something like this, no internet, no social media for three months. Um, and he talks about that experience, uh, something that comes up throughout the book. And most of us can't do that even for three months, but let alone for the rest of our lives. But there are ways that we can Again, not look at it black and white and what can we do. Uh, But I strongly agree with this notion that what the tech companies are doing is very harmful. And in the name of 
the economy and capitalism and making profits, it's really harming people and harming society. Because we see that what they're selling, and it's not all bad, there's ways that people connect online, they get informed through social media, they uh, learn about things, they even feel less alone, they see someone else struggling with the same issue they're struggling with, they get inspired by people. So I've never wanted to make things black and white, but there's definitely some very, very harmful effects of what's happening with social media that I think we can't ignore or just say, well, the market's going to figure it out because that's not going to happen. And these companies become so big, they have a lot of power. It's very hard to stop them or to just think the market will sort it out. So I think there's a lot of good points he makes about how tech companies are really harming us. And we have to be aware that if they stay completely or as unregulated as they even are right now, um, they're not going to stop that harm. Even they know, he shares, there was some um, internal studies done at Facebook that found that they were just creating division. And it was very clear, and their research made it very clear that it was creating division, but it was essentially ignored by the higher-ups because they knew that was how they were making their money. Um, or it was uh, other research was showing that it was pushing people towards extremism and that I forgot what the percentage was like something like 64% of people who join extremist group were radicalized through things like Facebook. And so it's having that effect, but that is going to affect their bottom line if they stop doing those things. So they essentially ignore those things or come up with reasons that they can um, justify or explain away what is going on. So those are very, very real things. Again, doesn't take away our own personal responsibility to ourselves and what we do, but we shouldn't look at this as just an individual problem. Um, there's also a chapter on things like stress and how that's affecting us and triggering vigilance. And so we especially see people and children who are experiencing poverty and the stresses that come about from poverty will be more likely, much more likely to have attentional problems which might not seem surprising when you think about it like that, but when we see an individual child and they're not paying attention, we tend to think, oh, this child has ADHD and it's their fault, not realizing that uh, what they're experiencing can be very much uh, contributing to their attentional problems. And so there could be more diagnosis happening just because people are more aware and people are diagnosing it more, but we're also seeing rises in ADHD that can be linked to many things including phone, social media, but also um, what children are experiencing and not experiencing, because he talks about um, decreases in things like play. I was talking about me and my cousins just having unstructured play that we were experiencing, and that's becoming less and less. Most parents don't just let their kids play like we hear, especially decades ago, that people kids would just go play in the, the streets and then come home when it was dinner time or when it was dark. We don't really see much of that anymore. Everything is much more structured and there's something that kids are losing from this lack of free play that they themselves organize. Um, he also does have a chapter on uh, diets and pollution. And so there's research that shows, as I was mentioning before, that our diets have a big impact on all aspects of our health, but that, health, but that includes our attention and also that pollution affects our attention and affects many things as well. And so he talks about how we're seeing increased rates of 
both of those things, uh, rise in pollution, deterioration of our diets, and that's contributing to attention issues, especially for children. And so a whole chapter is on ADHD and how uh, responding we are responding to it. And I think uh, I agree with many of the points he made there as well, that we are telling children they are sick for functioning in a society that's quite sick. And if a child just doesn't sit still for a long time, something's wrong with them. Uh, or not looking, like I was saying before, is what's happening in their lives. Children who are experiencing severe stress, have experienced trauma, are currently experiencing a stressful home environment, are far more likely to have a hard time paying attention and sustaining their focus. Or if you've experienced a lot of stress, violence, trauma, it makes sense that you are more vigilant or hypervigilant, meaning that you don't pay attention to just one thing right in front of you because we can understand your brain, your body has learned that you have to pay attention to what's going on around you because it's not safe. You can't really feel a uh, focus on reading a book if you're worried about something dangerous that's going to happen behind your back. You have to keep one eye behind you. You can't have two eyes on the page. And so we see that these factors contribute a lot to issues related to attention, but sometimes we just blame the child or blame the parents for what's going on. So, uh, yeah, I did enjoy this book. And actually, related to that, I should also add the way education is, uh, you know, this idea that we just force kids to sit and memorize things. And he shares uh, something you see in lots of books that bring up education and what we do wrong and what other places do right. The example of Finland, where kids don't really start a type of organized schooling till the age of seven. Um, they're in school just a few hours a day until the age of 16. Testing is much less frequent there, and they don't focus on it the way we do here. And the, the kids are doing fine academically, even better, and they're happier as well. Um, and so I've heard stories of people saying people from America go to Finland to find out what they're doing right, but it's so different from what we do here that they say, oh, forget it, where it's like do less testing, make it less structured, do these types of things. And it's so different from... The American paradigm that they tend to say, "Oh, forget it. We just we can't do that here." So, this you know book does a great job of outlining various issues that contribute to what we might be experiencing individually and collectively, or we are experiencing collectively, of our attention becoming less or being focused on what I would also say is the wrong thing. So we're obviously paying attention to things, but not the the things that benefit us or they harm us in a variety of ways um, and, and what we can do about that or think about that individually, but also in societal ways, what needs to change to, to give us that back. And he does share how throughout history, there's always these fears that a new technology is going to ruin people and ruin kids. Even Socrates was worried that writing would make it so that people would stop remembering things. So what would be the point of memorizing things or keeping things in memory if we could write things down? So even that far back, or reading was going to be bad when people, the written word, uh, when people started printing books, that this was going to be a problem. So we do see that, and we always have to be mindful of this type of fear that comes up anytime there's new technology. But I think the arguments he makes and these things he's bringing up are very real things. Um, they're not black and white, not all bad or all good, but looking at the effects of what's happened to our attention and our focus, what we can do individually, but also... He does share some ideas of collective types of actions or things we have to fight for to create kind of like a attention rebellion where we 
um, get our attention back or do things to make easier for us to get our attention back. So that was the book Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So I mentioned uh, in the previous segment, I believe, about this, or maybe it was in the first segment, about how some of these ways that we are losing our ability to focus or, or the amount that we focus and sustain our focus, people might like or they're drawn towards them. After all, no one is forcing you to go on Instagram or Facebook or TikTok. They're not making you have to do it. You're at some level choosing to do so. And so actually I heard a conversation with um, Johan Hari discussing this book and this topic came up and I thought about this uh, this concept, one that is I think fundamental to so many issues that we deal with are fundamental just being a human being, which is because we are biological beings, we are drawn towards things that we like, of course. But the things that we like and feel good in the moment often don't do us well long term or in the long run. And it's a very difficult one of those balances that we have to figure out and keep navigating because what feels good does have something good about it for us but too much of it or at the wrong time or sometimes not being able to go away from it actually hurts us. So to live a good life, you have to do things that in the moment feel worse than the things that feel good. You can't always do the thing that feels good. And especially if we keep doing things that feel good to the extreme, we really can get into trouble as well. So it's not just if something feels good, uh, we do that. And so we know this in a way um, but then we hear these arguments, it can make it seem like, well, if people are liking something, if they like being on Instagram, uh, then that means it's good. We, we shouldn't stop it. And so I think the way to look at this is less about just if people like it, but what is beneficial for us individually and as a society. Not If you like it, then yes, we can introduce some new product that tastes so good but if it kills you, you, you still might have to eat it, even if it kills them instantly. And of course, that's what happens is people are eating food that kills them in a longer term, shortens their life, and we, we do that. Um, and I think this also, to me, brings back this notion of as much as we, we love to think of ourselves as rational and responsible and we have willpower, which we do, we have all of those things, but we think it goes to some degree that we... We can figure it out on our own completely when we really can't or it's much more challenging than that. And so we see laws, for example, I know there was that one, now it's several years ago, almost many years ago now, um, depending on how you define many, uh, in New York where was, they were going to ban very large sodas, like huge sodas, like it was almost like a bucket of soda because it was just unhealthy to have that much of a sugary drink. It was just not good for you. So they're trying to limit that. And people really got upset because it brings up this argument about personal freedom and ability to make our own choices versus government control or but government trying to protect us or to help us in some way. And so depending on where you lie on that uh, argument and that continuum of personal freedom versus support from others giving you a, frame, a healthier framework, you might decide it doesn't matter. People should be able to make their own choices, even if it's extremely unhealthy. And it makes me think of how I've, I've wondered that if 
me and whoever you are listening right now, if I got to make the decisions for your life and you got to make the decisions for my life tomorrow, just for one day, um, especially when it comes to, let's say, our, our health, you would be probably much healthier and I would be much healthier because it's very easy to say, okay, we'll wake up and exercise and then eat this healthy food and then do this next thing that's good for you. Make sure you get enough sleep. Make sure you then eat this thing that's good for you and not bad for you. It's a very easy thing for us to tell someone else what to do, but also it shows that we can make better decisions with other people's help as well. So then it gets this tough part. Well, if I'm then making the decisions for you, I'm taking away your authority to make your own decisions, your autonomy, and your freedom, and that doesn't feel very good. But I am saying that you would be healthier if we let each other make decisions for ourselves. Or think of someone who's dealing with addiction or dealing with any kind of problematic behavior. If someone else made their decisions for them, they'd be doing much better. And this is actually, for me, when I understand in AA, the first step is you have to admit you have a problem, but also... It's you, you turn over to a higher power, and so generally this tends to mean God for most people, that there's this higher power. The way I actually see it is not that we are, you have to say it's God, but that is there is this recognition that I myself am not in control of how I use this substance. I, I just can't do it. And it is a, of course, we could make, in some ways makes you feel weak, but there's something empowering and acknowledging that I can't do this on my own. I've realized this reality. So there's a reality there. It's like, I can't just limit the amount of this thing I put into my body or this behavior that I do. I just can't do it. And so I'm going to need some a higher power, meaning an outside power from myself to help me make these decisions when it comes to this thing. And then because it's part of life, I'm going to need them in, in a bigger way. I need support because the desire, the craving, the temptation could come up at some random time or at any time, and I need to get some help with that. So I've always thought of that first step in AA, not having to be something religious or even requiring a belief in God. It can be that for many people. But to me, it's more this acknowledgement that I can't do this on my own. I'm powerless over this substance, this thing. And so I need outside support to help me in making that decision. And so I think this comes down to, for me, when we look at what's happening in society, it's one of these catchphrases of just saying, oh, it's capitalism. I already mentioned it once before. And so it's easy to say F capitalism, and you see posts like that, and people talk about that. Um, and it can make it very empty. And, and unfortunately, what happens is people who maybe know part of an issue or who just want to give an opinion on an issue go to these types of phrases sometimes or these concepts as an easy way to make it seem like they're making an argument or to silence the other side. But unfortunately, what it does is it takes away from the validity of that argument or when it actually might be in play because people use it so much that it starts to lose its value. Similar things can happen with people saying, oh, that's racist or what you're saying is racist, where sometimes people just say it to shut the other person up or to make them feel like they're wrong um, or to just show that they are so woke or so advanced that they see something as racist when it might not be there. But unfortunately, what it does is when something is very racist, now when someone says that's racist, people think, oh, see, you think every people say everything is racist. And so it, it kind of has that boy who cried wolf type of a effect where when the real problem is there, when there really is a fire there, people think 
there's no fire because people say everything is a fire. So it's unfortunate that that happens because the real cases can get watered out too in that. And so similarly with this, oh, capitalism is the problem, people do sometimes throw it out just in an empty way. They might not even know what they exactly mean or it's something related to business or money and they say it's capitalism without necessarily looking at um, is this really what's going on or what, are, what do you even mean by that? What aspect of capitalism? And so, of course, I might go ahead and do that in these next five, six minutes, but because I can't say I know this whole issue. But I do think that when we look at these types of topics, um, capitalism and the mindset of capitalism definitely play a large part in this. Because the focus of capitalism isn't on human well-being. It's on economic growth. It's not on human growth as in um, how we are as people and as a society. It's about, at times, human growth in our size because it can lead to, as I was saying, obesity in the ways that we um, make food and sell food and distribute food that contribute to things. So it's not based on making things better. And I think it was the book Economic Dignity which introduced this concept that the, econo uh, the economy is not supposed to, we're not supposed to serve the economy, the economy is supposed to serve us. And by us, it means like humanity, society. But we really have it the other way around. And um, this became very clear when we saw things like during the pandemic, where people would make the argument, well, should people die? Or should we focus on the economy? You know, it saves the economy if people go back to work, but people might die. And things are much more complicated than that, because there's always going to be some of this give and take of what we do with things and how that affects people's lives. But the argument was very clear for some people that the economy was more important than life. And so I think that's such an important thing to keep in mind, that the economy is serving people, not people are serving the economy. It should be to make human life better, human uh, experiences, relationships, society better. Not that that is the bottom line, but because so much of economic history and human history has been focused on this growth and that that means everyone is doing better when the economy grows, it's made us lose sight of what the point of this whole thing is. And so when we have this focus on capitalism that profit is the only thing that matters and economic growth is the only thing that matters, we can lose sight of what's best for people. So if people are spending, every American spent one extra hour on Facebook today, um, there would be some calculations of, well, what is it taking them away from? But that could be very good for the economy. So if a mother or father is home and uh, spends an extra hour on, on Instagram and then just lets their kid watch something else, maybe even that is part of the economy, that would be good for the economy better than if the parent put their phone away and put their child's tablet away and played with them one-on-one -on -one for an hour. That would not be good for the economy. The only way it might be measured in the economy is like, well, if that made the the parent happier in some way and then they worked better, now it might be, or if they spent some more money in some way. So the problem with capitalism, one, I've talked before about this notion of growth being the ultimate goal, um, that if we only focus on growth, of course, that's impossible. Infinite growth is impossible. That sounds more like a cancer than something good, but also that the focus is not on human well-being, but it's about profits. It's not about human need and needs and how we make things better for everyone. It's about making sure more money is made. 
which doesn't necessarily contribute to that and often does not. And so when I read this book and looking at the attention economy, we see that so clearly that, you know, of course, they might even show there are these ways that people connect and people learn things and their lives have gotten better through social media. And as I said, definitely that is true. It's not to say that isn't the case. But if we look at the sum total, we can see that there's a lot of negative effects or overall it might be a negative effect or that how about we create it in a way that doesn't emphasize those negatives, which could happen. He does talk about how the companies themselves likely will never do that because it affects their bottom line. It might have to come about from government intervention and regulation to say that certain things are are not okay. Um, but if things stay the way that they are, there's no reason for them to not make things more divisive. They might make it less that way if people get upset or if it comes out, they might have to change things, but it's not in their best interest. So even if we like something, meaning it feels good to us, it definitely doesn't mean it's good for us. That seems simple, but in the moment, it doesn't always seem that simple. Well, if people like going on Instagram, then something good is there. But it's just like if people like eating foods that are very, very unhealthy for them, does that mean it's good for society to have those foods um, or other things that are out there in the world? Or if there's movies that people like, but it hurts them in some emotional way, is that good for them? If it hurts society, let's say makes people more violent, is that good for them? No. Or is that good overall? So I think this, as I said, it's a very simplistic argument to say, oh, yeah, you know, screw capitalism. That's the problem. But I do think it definitely is a huge part of this idea of what it preys on are, are human frailties and, and weaknesses in a large scale, um, and it affects us in lots of negative ways. do have some more thoughts on it, but at the end of the show, and it's definitely a topic that I know I'll bring up um, other times because I think it's really significant. So let's wrap up for tonight. A big thank you to Razale here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fahid Olakwi. Zan Zendegi Azadi.